Good morning, everyone. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute. I want to thank you all for coming and welcome you to our November Conservative Women's Network Luncheon. Special thank you to Genevieve, who is uh, sitting in for Bridget uh, today. Um, we've had a wonderful partnership with Heritage. We've been doing this lunch now for 17 years. I'm so delighted to introduce Melanie Kirkpatrick to discuss her new book, Thanksgiving, the holiday at the heart of the American experience. I think we can all agree that after a bruising election season, it's refreshing to pause as we approach the holidays and reflect on one of America's great traditions. We're so glad Melanie could join us today, coming down from Connecticut. And uh, she is based there at a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, uh, also here in Washington. She contributes reviews and commentary to various publications, including the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. And she has a piece there today. I hope you'll all look at it, because it comes from the book, right? Mm -hmm. And she worked for the Wall Street Journal for many years as well. And she's actually there until the end of the year again. She was a longtime member of their editorial board and a deputy editor of the editorial page. She's also a director of the America for Bulgaria Foundation, a trustee of Princeton in Asia, and a member of the advisory board of the Human Freedom Program of the George W. Bush Institute. She holds an AB from Princeton and an MA from the University of Toronto. And in addition to Thanksgiving, she's the author of another fabulous book called Escape from North Korea, The Untold Story of Asia's Underground Railroad, published by Encounter Books in uh, 2012. A couple of other little miscellaneous things about you. She's a devoted member of the Trollope Society. Those of you who like 18th century reading know what that is. And she loves to cook, and she loves to make pies. But unfortunately, this year, because she's working so hard on the book, she's going to buy her pies. <laughs> Please join me in welcoming Melanie Kirkpatrick. Thank you so much for that warm introduction. And it's the first time anybody has introduced me, in, uh, uh, including the information that I like to make pies. <laughs> so, But it's appropriate. Um, my book on Thanksgiving uh, came out a couple of weeks ago. And I thought today what I would do is uh, talk a little bit about what inspired me to write it and then um, mention a couple of stories from my book, uh, particular, ones that I think particularly um, would be of interest to conservative women. So um, let me begin with why I wrote the book. It was uh, September 11th, um, 2001, and I was in downtown Manhattan that day. I saw the towers fall. Afterwards, like so many Americans, I began to reflect a little more about what it means to be an American. And as Thanksgiving approached, um, I found myself reading William Bradford's Of Plymouth Plantation, which if you haven't read, I really encourage you to do. Bradford was the longtime governor of Plymouth Plantation, and his journal is one of the great works of American literature. He tells the story of how uh, the Plymouth, the, the pilgrims went from England to Holland and then on the Mayflower to the United States, and he follows then their history for a couple of decades here in the New World. It's a very powerful read and makes you uh, really see what life must have been life like for these early Americans. Um, 
And as Thanksgiving approached, I jumped ahead to his account of the first Thanksgiving in the fall of 1621. It's only about 150 words, but it could speak for what Thanksgiving is like today. As he described it, it was a time of feasting and a time of fellowship with the Wampanoan Indians who joined them. And uh, it, 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 to my mind, it pointed the way to the multicultural people we are today. My book is a collection of stories, really. It looks at 400 years of history with Thanksgiving, beginning even before the pilgrims and the Wampanoan Indians. And I speak a little bit about, I have a chapter where I discuss places in the United States that claim to be the site of the true first Thanksgiving. That is, they celebrated Thanksgivings before the pilgrims and the Indians did, including two in Texas, which uh, uh, is your home state. Um, one in Virginia, where I imagine some of you live, and um, one in Maine, and a couple in Florida. And it was very interesting to research those histories. I especially enjoyed reading about the one in Virginia, which took place on the, the James River uh, near Richmond. And uh, in 1962, when President Kennedy issued his first Thanksgiving proclamation, a Virginia state senator sent a telegram of protest saying, you know, you should have mentioned Virginia, the site of the true first Thanksgiving. Well, um, it fell to one of Kennedy's aides to answer that letter. And that aide happened to be the very subsequently extremely famous American historian, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. So he wrote back to, um, to the Virginia State Senator saying, you're absolutely right. Um, we apologize, but there is a New England bias at the White House. <laughs> <laughs> Kennedy, of course, was from Massachusetts. We'll correct it. And next year, Kennedy's proclamation, which was issued just shortly before his assassination, in his proclamation, he mentioned the original Thanksgivings in Virginia and Massachusetts, mentioning Virginia first, which Virginians were happy about. <clears throat> so that it was that's the kind of story I had a lot of fun digging up as I looked through four generations of, of history of the holiday. Um, the book covers, it opens with the pilgrims, and then it also talks about the, um, the competitors to Thanksgiving that I just mentioned, and um, talks about how the pilgrims became part of the holiday as well. They didn't, be, Thanksgivings, uh, the, the Thanksgiving tradition um, developed independent of the pilgrims, and it wasn't until the 19th century that the pilgrims were connected to Thanksgiving. Um, that happened uh, in part because <coughs> William Bradford's uh, journal had disappeared, and the story of Thanksgiving was not uh, discovered until the book and another eyewitness account both reappeared in the 19th century. Um, and I also talk about the political, uh, how it was involved with a number of political uh, um, issues in our history. I talk about the history of football and how it became associated with Thanksgiving. I talk about, um, in one chapter, Native Americans and their attitude toward 
Thanksgiving. Uh, there's another chapter on Thanksgiving generosity, how gener uh, generosity and the, the holiday of Thanksgiving giving have always been closely connected. And of course, there's a chapter on dinner and the history of that. So in the Q&A session, I can give you this overview so that in the Q&A session, if you have questions uh, about any of these topics, I'd be more than happy to, happy to, um, to answer them. But today, I, I want to focus on the story, uh, two stories. One of, first of Sarah Josepha Hale, who is known as the godmother of Thanksgiving. And the other story I'll tell is the one of uh, George Washington and the debate in the first Congress of the United States about whether or not the president had the authority to issue uh, a Thanksgiving proclamation. So first, Mrs. Hale. Sarah Josepha Hale was a, a New Englander born in New Hampshire in 1788. And unlike most women of her day, she was very highly educated, thanks to her mother, her father, and her brother. Uh, her mother homeschooled all of the children, so she got a good education there. And then her brother went off to Dartmouth and received a college education. And when he came home on visits, he would teach everything he had been taught to Sarah. Um, who, as I say, was really interested in a lot of intellectual issues. And then she, uh, at the late age, then she got married. At the late age, late age for the time, of 25. <laughs> and uh, she and her husband, who was a, an attorney, would at night sit by the fireside and study such things as botany, French, history, and literature. When she was 34, he died, leaving her with four children, a fifth on the way, and um, no um, money, nothing to live on. So she began to write. Her, um, readings, her writings were um, published, and uh, she wrote a novel called Northwood that was popular and was even published in England, which was quite a, an accomplishment for an American writer. In 1834, she became editor of a women's magazine in Boston. And she caught, her work caught the attention of a publisher in Philadelphia who had a, a magazine that um, he was nurturing. And he knew that the only way he could get Sarah Joseph Hale was to buy the magazine she worked for. So she did that. He did that. She moved to Philadelphia and became editor of Godey's Ladies Book. Now, what made Sarah Josepha Hale one of America's great editors was the following. Unlike most editors in, of magazines in America, uh, she wanted to publish articles about American things written by Americans. This, you would think, would be an obvious uh, job for an editor, but that wasn't the case back then. Back then, most magazines and newspapers republished articles that they had stolen, in effect, from British newspapers and magazines. There wasn't an international copyright at the time. So um, Sarah Josepha Hale, 
at Godey's Ladies Book had the um, backing of her publisher, who was willing to pay for her to hire Americans to write about American themes. So she hired um, and published articles by such people as Harriet uh, Beecher Stowe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Edgar Allan Poe, just to name a few. And my favorite quote about uh, Sarah Joseph Hale comes from Edgar Allan Poe, who called her a lady, a, no, a woman of masculine energy. <laughs> so I think that was a compliment. Uh, Back in the day. Right. So um, because of her interest in uh, things American, she was also interested in Thanksgiving. And starting very early on, um, indeed, in her first novel, before she became an editor, she would write about Thanksgiving. And um, when she got to Godey's Ladies Book, she used the pages of her magazine to promote the idea of a national Thanksgiving. She, uh, at the time, Thanksgivings were called by uh, individual states and they were celebrated on days that would range from the beginning of October or the end of September until the beginning of December. Not The country did not celebrate on the same day. So it was Sarah Joseph Hale's ambition to have our country have a, a, a single Thanksgiving where we could come together and give thanks for our blessings as a nation. She saw Thanksgiving, which was a homegrown holiday, um, uh, along the lines akin to the 4th of July and Washington's birthday. That is, for her, it was a kind of patriotic holiday, a, a time to celebrate our blessings as Americans. Um, so in addition to publishing editorials calling for a national Thanksgiving, she would also publish fiction that was set around the Thanksgiving holiday as a way to give her readers an idea of what a Thanksgiving could be like. They were usually pretty sentimental stories, but they were marvelous to read, especially when it came to describing what everybody was having for dinner. And she did something um, else, that, else that was brilliant. And I think she was, she may have been the first editor to do this. She published recipes. And she asked her readers to send in recipes. So a lot of the classic Thanksgiving recipes were found in the pages of her magazine. And indeed, she compiled them in a couple of cookbooks as well. Um, in addition to all of her work at Lodi's uh, Godi Godi's Ladies Book on Thanksgiving, she um, pursued her cause in another way. She conducted a series of um, uh, letter writing campaigns. Every year she would write to dozens, maybe hundreds, of important political and other figures in the United States, trying to get them to sign on to her idea of a national Thanksgiving. She wrote to every president since at least Zachary Taylor, and maybe earlier, maybe starting with uh, James Polk, and uh, she never got a reply that I know of until 1863, when Abraham Lincoln decided in the middle of the Civil War to call a national Thanksgiving. Now, Lincoln and Jefferson Davis had both issued Thanksgiving proclamations for, um, to give thanks for victories in the Civil War. But um, nobody since George Washington had called for a national 
Thanksgiving for general blessings. So um, when Lincoln did this, it was quite extraordinary. First of all, the country was divided and Americans were literally killing each other. Second, um, um, it, it was probably the bl bloodiest year in American history. The Battle of Gettysburg had recently taken place, and surely the, the last thing on Americans' minds, north or south, would have been things to be thankful for. And yet Lincoln listed them all in his, in his proclamation, the um, good crops, the, the good weather, and uh, he, he really was pointing the way to what the country would become when it was at peace again. So Sarah Joseph Hale was the one who was responsible for that. And she lived to be 90. And shortly before her death, she was interviewed. She was working all the time. And shortly before her death, she was interviewed about Thanksgiving and Lincoln's decision to do that. And she said how happy she was and glad that her, she had been successful. But there was still one thing left. And that was Congress had to pass legislation, making it a national holiday. And Congress didn't do that until 1941. And if you want to know more about that, you can ask me during our Q&A. But uh, for my second story, I'd like to return, uh, go backwards in time, and talk about George Washington and our first national Thanksgiving, the one that inspired Sarah Joseph Hale to want to make it a permanent fixture uh, in our national calendar. And in 1789, the first Congress of the United States was meeting not in Washington, but in Lower Manhattan, where which was the cat, New York was the capital of the country at the time. They were meeting in Federal Hall, and they've been meeting there since March, trying to figure out, how, debating how to implement the Constitution of the United States. So, for example, they had to create the whole federal court system. That was one of their accomplishments. That Congress is often called the most productive Congress uh, we've ever had. <laughs> and uh, when September came around, uh, they were getting ready to recess. And a congressman from New Jersey, Elias Budino, rose and introduced a resolution to ask the president to issue a proclamation naming a day of national thanksgiving. Well, I think to his surprise, certainly to mine when I read about it, this resolution was controversial. Why? Well, for two reasons, and reasons that are relevant today and have to do with our continuing national political conversation. The first was executive power. And some members of Congress felt that the Constitution did not give the president the authority to issue a, um, a proclamation naming a day of thanksgiving. They argued that that authority uh, devolved to the governors of the individual states, not to our president. The second objection had to do with the separation of church and state. The Congress had just debated the text of the First Amendment. And some people felt that Thanksgiving, being a religious 
matter was out of outside the authority of the president. Um, in the end, the resolution passed. Uh, a delegation from Congress went to the president asking him to declare, declare a, a day of national thanksgiving. He did so. But Washington, uh, who was wise in so many matters, uh, was, I think, wise in this one as well. He issued his proclamation, which, by the way, was the first presidential proclamation, not just the first Thanksgiving proclamation, but the first proclamation of any sort. He issued the proclamation, and then he sent it to the governors of the 13 states. And in his cover note, he said, um, he requested the favor of uh, them to celebrate this national Thanksgiving in their state. That is, he requested them to do so. He didn't order to them to do so. So uh, this indicates to me that he had paid attention to the debate in Congress, and it was tipping his hat toward, toward that debate. Um, Washington was very... I think, as you know, he was very conscious of the fact that as the first president, he was setting precedence in everything he did. So um, two things I will tell you about that first proclamation, which um, have, again, have resonance today to other things. And one is that um, his Thanksgiving president, uh, uh, proclamation was religiously inclusive. It, did not single out Christians. It, he invited people of all faiths to celebrate the holiday. And um, this has been the case in virtually every presidential proclamation since Lincoln. There have been a couple of presidents have slipped up a little bit, but making reference, making a reference to a specific religion. But um, uh, this has been the case, and all of our national thanksgivings have been religiously inclusive. And it's really that rarest of religious holidays, one, and I would argue it is a religious holiday, one that can be celebrated by people of any faith or of no faith. Um, the second thing he did, which, um, in, and set an example for us, was that he made a donation, a charitable donation on Thanksgiving Day. And not only did he make it, he made sure that it was publicly known that he had made it. And he, in doing so, he was setting, helping to establish a tradition of thinking of the poor and the less fortunate on Thanksgiving Day. This actually was a tra tradition that began in 1636 in Situate, Massachusetts, where um, there was a day of thanksgiving issued by the, uh, proclaimed by uh, the church in town. And uh, in addition to calling for a day of thanksgiving, they asked the richer folk to include the poorer folk in their, um, uh, to think of them, which would mean include, include them in their dinner. Uh, so um, Washington was reinforcing that tradition and, I think, setting a model for us to follow. In conclusion, and then I'll welcome your questions, I'd like to talk about a Thanksgiving tradition that I would like to see revived. It's called Five Kernels of Corn, and some of you may have heard of it. 
Um, it's uh, based on, a, it dates back to the early 19th century. And it is based on a legend that I can't find any evidence that it was true, but the spirit of it certainly was true. It refers to um, the first winter that the pilgrims spent in Plymouth. That is before the first Thanksgiving. And uh, during that time, they, they called it the starving time. And they were, many people died of uh, hunger, of um, a disease that ravaged them. And by Thanksgiving, only half of the original number of pilgrims were still alive. Well, during, just that gives you just a sense of how terrible it was. And during the starving time, so the legend goes, the governor would um, hand out to each pilgrim five kernels of corn, and that was their allotment for the day. And before they ate it, according to the legend, they gave thanks, even for this meager amount of food. So the five kernels of corn um, in the early 19th century began to be placed on the Thanksgiving table of individual family homes. And I'd really like to see a revival of that tradition. For me, it symbolizes several things. One, the courage, the fortitude of the pilgrims and the terrible ordeal they went through when they first came here. Second, it, it exemplifies the um, generosity and the goodwill that the Wampanoans had toward the English. They taught them how to plant corn, they gave them corn, and um, it was thanks to these Native Americans that the pilgrims were able to survive. And third, and perhaps most important, it symbolizes gratitude. The fact that um, the pilgrims were able to, according to legend, give thanks even for this um, small amount of food uh, helps us to, I think, on Thanksgiving Day, remember to give thanks for the many blessings that we all have. So with that, I will close, and I would welcome your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, what, a, what a great talk. Um, and what a fascinating little book. We're going to be selling this uh, outside later if you would like one. Yes. But I was just thinking, wasn't that the day when the president requested that states do something instead of demand yes. and threatened? Yes. yes, or passing a law. Or, I didn't know or, that. Or, or an executive order. Yeah, so many so, wonderful things to learn. Yeah. If you would raise your hand, Melanie, I'll let you call on people. Okay. And uh, if you give your name and your affiliation. Yes, one here. thank you. Uh, Madeline wait, wait for the mic, because so, oh, we're taping. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Madeline Sullivan again, and I am with Senator Deb Fisher. Uh -huh. And my question is related to, uh, you mentioned in 1941, that is when Thanksgiving became like the Thanksgiving that we know it is today. Could you talk more about the history of Sure. That? Well, um, ever since, Link since Lincoln uh, issued his first, na the first in the modern series of national Thanksgiving proclamations, uh, every president has issued a proclamation. But it did not carry the force of law. Um, instead, uh, what he would do is he would issue the proclamation naming a day 
for Thanksgiving, and then the governors of the individual states would issue their proclamations. Uh, and many governors today issue, uh, maybe all, I'm not sure, uh, issue Thanksgiving proclamations. But anyway, the governors would issue um, their proclamations and everybody would celebrate together. And the date, um, with a couple of exceptions, the date was almost always the last Thursday of November, which was the day that Washington had proclaimed. So it was a tip of the hat to Washington. Well, in 1939, Franklin Roosevelt had another idea. It was the middle of the Great Depression, and he called a press conference in August and announced that he was changing the date of Thanksgiving. It wasn't going to be on the last Thursday of November. He decided that it would be a week earlier. Why? Because he had the dumb idea that if the Christmas shopping season was a week longer, it would help, people would buy more and it would help the economy, which was in depression. Now, this was a dumb idea because Americans didn't have more money. If they'd had it, they would have been happy to spend it, but they didn't have it. So, um, but in addition to that, it was a, not only a dumb idea economically, it was a dumb idea from, a, um, uh, point of, from the point of view of most Americans who were used to celebrating on the last Thursday of November, and they uh, erupted in protest with the result that half of the states voted, uh, decided to, the gov the gov it was up to the governors. And so in, this, in 1939, they had to take into consideration politics. You know, if they were, if the governor was a Democrat and Roosevelt was a Democrat, could they really go against the, the party um, uh, proposal? They had to take into politics. They also had to take into effect the impact it might have in their own state because um, a lot of states, uh, I, the football tradition had taken hold by then, and football schedules were such, and they were planned months in advance, that um, the championship game was usually played on Thanksgiving weekend. So this was another consideration that uh, a lot of people were worried about. Uh, and they also just had a take into consideration uh, traditions. The result was that about half the states celebrated on Roosevelt's Thanksgiving, and the other half celebrated on the traditional date. Roosevelt, this went on for three years. Uh, Roosevelt's Thanksgiving came to be known as Franksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, that's the story in brief. I go into it in more detail but in the book, but um, uh, my mo my mother, who uh, passed away now, uh, was tell. I remember her telling me as how um, when she was a student in Boston during this time period, she couldn't go home for Thanksgiving because Buffalo, New York, where we're from, uh, celebrated the uh, on Thanksgiving. <laughs> so, uh, but there was it caused a lot of trouble. And then in 1941, Congress decided to act and it passed uh, legislation saying that Thanksgiving henceforth would be on the fourth Thursday of November, and Roosevelt signed it into law the day after Christmas in 1941. Lady in blue? Mm -hmm. um, Kelly Billigmeyer, Heritage Foundation. Um, 
Do you see a significant difference between the Thanksgiving before, where it's more of a community-driven holiday versus now where it's individual and family, perhaps? Um, you know, I hadn't really thought of it that way before, um, but certainly in uh, the uh, 17th century when the pilgrims and then subsequent um, settlers from England were celebrating, um, it, it may have, they, they were small settlements, so it may have been um, a more um, you know, neighborhood kind of thing. Uh, the pilgrims brought with them a tradition of a communal meal on a Thanksgiving day. So um, that's perhaps one of the um, antecedents of the Thanksgiving dinner. At some point toward the end of the 17th century, uh, the, the dinner took on a much larger um, importance than it originally had. And so some churches stopped um, their evening worship services. So to make way for people to have family meals uh, more easily on that day. And then in, uh, even, even Boston did so around the turn of the, the 18th century. Um, but I, I do want to add one thing to that. The tradition of generosity um, centered around Thanksgiving um, has persisted ever since the beginning. And it, it is the shape has changed, perhaps. But um, Americans are the world's most philanthropic people. And you see this most prominently around the holidays. Uh, people in the business of philanthropy referred to the giving season, which goes from Thanksgiving to Christmas, usually. That's where they often get a lot of their contributions. And uh, Thanksgiving, I, 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 there's a chapter on generosity in my book, and I look at some of these traditions. For example, I quote a letter from the 18th century during the Revolutionary War from a young woman who wrote about all the neighbors who came to dinner, three elderly ladies who didn't have husbands and didn't have any place to go on Thanksgiving, uh, or uh, five orphan children who were invited to join them, and then um, also some neighbors who had just moved in. And if you think about it, even today, this one of the saddest images in American <coughs> culture is somebody who doesn't have a place to go on Thanksgiving Day. And I, I certainly know lots of people who in, invite a colleague or a friend um, who, you know, is away from home and uh, needs a place to go on Thanksgiving. In addition to that, though, we also have a tradition of making sure that um, the less fortunate among us um, are well cared for on Thanksgiving Day. You think about all the food banks and the houses of worship that have um, Thanksgiving baskets or otherwise help people who might not otherwise be able to afford a, a good Thanksgiving dinner have one. And this tradition carries through to today. And finally, I'll also mention something that you may have heard of. It's a, a new tradition called Giving Tuesday. It takes place on the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. It was started by the 92nd Street Y in New York City, which is a Jewish organization. And uh, this is explicitly part of the Jewish tradition 
to um, serve the community. And um, it's um, when it's, you know, it's not an organization, it's just really a collaboration. And uh, nonprofit organizations or groups of people who want to raise money try to do so on Giving Tuesday, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. Yes. Hi, Elisa with the Clearview Blues Policy Institute as an intern. Uh, first, I want to thank you for mentioning Giving Tuesday. That's really awesome, and I know Clearview Blues will be doing some, some stuff for that. Oh, good, good, good. Um, my question for you today is you mentioned that Washington sent out an original invite to the governors for their states to participate, but because of like maybe the controversy around that first uh, act that he took, were there any states who decided not to accept no, the invitation? No, no, no. And um, it, when he sent the cover letter with the proclamation, um, they very quickly uh, acceded to his request. And you can find um, how Lincoln, uh, Washington's proclamation was reprinted in newspapers of the day. It was read from church pulpits on um, uh, Sunday mornings. So um, the, it was very widely celebrated throughout the country. Washington's reputation was such that um, uh, I think anything he requested uh, just about uh, was uh, taken very seriously. I will point out that when Jefferson became president, um, a minister wrote to him, and we have the correspondence is quoted in my book, uh, a minister wrote to him asking him to name a day of Thanksgiving, and he wrote back a very eloquent letter explaining why he wouldn't do so, that it, he, it wasn't uh, his uh, job as president to do this though he had issued one when he was governor of Virginia. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yes? Um, I'm Sam Lianza from uh, interning at Heritage. And um, you spoke about some of the first Thanksgivings outside of the traditional um, 1621 day. And I was just wondering if there have been any unique traditions that have been passed down or if um, Thanksgiving, as we know it, mostly models the date we pick as the yeah. traditional date. Yeah, that's exactly right. Those Thanksgivings uh, have not really had an influence on the holiday we, we celebrate today, except in the sense that it sets a pattern for giving thanks and giving thanks to God. They, they were religious uh, in origin. So, um, and, and you know, Thanksgiving itself grows out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. So it just, in that sense, they kind of reinforce the, the, the habit of giving thanks. And so too do Native American Thanksgivings, which, um, if you want to be literal, were truly the first Thanksgivings on our continent. Yes? Thank you very much for that. I'm John Flo at the Heritage Foundation. I'm interested in the traditions of the food. Uh, the typical oh. Thanksgiving foods. You want me to get you hungry. Yes. <laughs> do you do you find that there's huge changes in the typical Thanksgiving meal throughout the uh, the years? And also, do you think that there's any truth in that the bald eagle was chosen over the turkey for the American symbol so that we can continue to enjoy turkey <laughs> for Thanksgiving? I don't know anything about that, but I'm really <laughs> but I'm really glad we're not eating eagle for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Although the pilgrims did eat eagle, so. Um, 
Well, if, if you want to eat what uh, the pilgrims and the Indians ate on your Thanksgiving uh, day, uh, you should stock up on venison and oysters and mussels and corn. Um, they may have had a turkey there. Uh, there are two eyewitness accounts, as I, as I mentioned, and one of them mentions uh, turkey in passing. And we know that wild turkey was uh, very much available um, back then. Um, the, you know, the culinary history of the dinner is difficult to trace until you get to the end of the 18th century. Um, and then the, the set Thanksgiving meal that's very similar to the meal we have today uh, was taking shape. But basically from then until sometime in the 19th century, uh, turkeys are mentioned a lot. But so are other meats, and people would typically have um, a big spread, and it would include roast beef and other meats and a roast goose and a roast turkey. Um, and one of the features, uh, this really surprised me, one of the features of um, Thanksgiving dinner, I mean a really important feature of Thanksgiving dinner, was chicken pot pie. And uh, apparently, I met a, a woman from Maine who said that's still in her family's tradition. Um, then the second course, after all these, these various meats and side dishes, the second course was dessert. And again, it was a, a big spread, judging from the, the letters and um, uh, other accounts I've read about dinner. And pie was heavily featured, including pies I had never heard of. And one is called Marlboro pie. Have any of you ever had a Marlboro pie? Well, this was very popular. It was a kind of apple pie, um, which had a lemon lemon in it and a kind of a custard base and, and no top crust, which sounds good. Um, Indian pudding is a tradition in some families, and even uh, plum pudding. You see accounts of that as well in desserts. But uh, the basic tradition of eating too much was set by the pilgrims, <laughs> I think, back in 1621. Is, uh, both of the accounts talk about the abundance, really dwell on the abundance of food. So um, in that sense, um, we're, uh, you know, we're being historically accurate. <laughs> yes. Mm. Um, I'm Ansley. I'm with the Heritage Foundation, and I was just wondering what your opinion on Black Friday and Cyber Monday are, and if they've had <laughs> negative effects on Thanksgiving, the traditional Thanksgiving, yeah, and just yeah. that. Well, um, I, I kind of like Black Friday <laughs> <laughs> and Cyber Monday, um, and I think they say something positive about our society which is that um, uh, it, you know, it, we're out there buying gifts for people and um, in, in most cases, in many cases. And also, if we have the money to spend, it's a sign of prosperity, which is a positive thing. And it also um, indicates that we're going to give more, we're going to spend more on, you know, uh, and helping the causes we favor, because the more history shows that the more money Americans have, the more they give to 
to good causes. So I don't, I don't mind it so much. Um, the debate about Good Friday and, and not Good Friday, pardon me, Black Friday and um, Cyber Monday, where you know people talk about it taking away from the meaning of thanks me, meaning of Thanksgiving, really reminds me of the debate over football in the 19th century, where um, people Americans were football crazy, yeah, well they still are, <laughs> but uh, uh, and. The, this idea of football and Thanksgiving was controversial, um, and people would debate whether it was the right thing to do on Thanksgiving, where you should spend it with family, and you should be thinking about your blessings rather than going to a football game. And we all know that those arguments kind of lost out. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, you know, I, I doesn't really, I'm not really too exercised by it. Yes. Yes. Wait for the mic, please. Frida Hugley. I'm just a member of a Republican um, group. Um, when did the Macy's tradition start with the parade? Mm -hmm. um, I don't really cover parades in my book, but I did research them. And it started in, the, I think it was the 1920s. It was um, pretty early in the 20th century. Um, and other department stores hosted them as well. Um, but the tradition goes back farther. A little, uh, in New York City, neighborhoods would, um, in the 19th century, neighborhoods would hold parades. People would get together and dress up and um, march up and down the streets of the neighborhood. So, um, and I think other places did so. People around the country had different traditions for Thanksgiving, like in Connecticut there were some famous bonfires that they would hold on Thanksgiving Day in different parts of the state. Um, but uh, the department store Thanksgiving was, as I say, I think the 1920s. Bridget? <laughs> Thanks, Melanie. Bridget Wagner from Heritage. I'm just picking up on the traditions. When uh, at the book launch event, one of the attendees mentioned their family tradition of reading a proclamation um, at the meal. And uh, now that you've done a number of these events, I'm wondering what other kind of really wonderful family traditions have you heard about that you mm -hmm, could share with mm -hmm. us? Well, the um, the readings has. Um, have I've heard about that a lot, and it's sometimes uh, the one you mentioned was uh, trying to read one of the presidential proclamations, uh, you know, choosing a different president every year. But um, uh, I included at the back of my book a section on readings, and these are short excerpts um, about Thanksgiving that fam you know, famous Americans have um, written or said, and I'm, I'm kind of hoping to start a new tradition uh, by including it that way. It's labeled free readings for Thanksgiving Day. Um, other traditions I've heard of uh, are um, some families go around the table and ask everybody for something for which they're thankful. 
um, which is a nice tradition. Uh, other traditions in my own family, we always uh, at Thanksgiving make a contribution to uh, an organization that helps feed the hungry, and I've heard other people say that as, as well. Many people have traditions of playing football. Uh, the other day I heard a tradition, um, um, oysters used to be a really popular part of Thanksgiving dinner, and that was back in the 19th century when oysters were cheap. And uh, I met a man who um, is going home to his parents' house in Maryland, and they do an oyster roast on uh, Thanksgiving morning, along with Bloody Marys, I think. <laughs> and uh, um, then they have dinner in the afternoon if they're, uh, I guess, if they're still uh, able to s stand. <laughs> but uh, so I thought, now that's that's a nice tradition too. Um, and you know, many families have a tradition of volunteering uh, at a, a dinner for the poor. I have a friend who did so um, in, a recent, uh, in a recent Thanksgiving, and um, she was see this Thanksgiving had a it was at a local church, and there was a church member who was the host of each table to. Um, because they wanted the guests to feel that they were in a family-like atmosphere. They didn't want to do a big buffet where people just went through with a tray. Instead, they um, uh, did it on Thanksgiving Day with um, uh, members of the church scattered around with the guests. I thought that was a lovely idea as well. Um, what an excellent discussion. Thank you so much. We want to give you a couple little things. This is our limited edition Claire Booth Loose Policy wow. Institute coffee mug with her famous saying, it's a little snide for Thanksgiving. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just hot off the press, our 2017 Great American Conservative Women calendar. These are all women that have spoken for us. We want to give it to you. It's good. practically you. warm and our Claire Boothless Policy Institute tote bag. Every woman needs it. There you go. Spectacular. Well, I will carry this around New York City with uh, great pleasure. Wonderful. Thank you. Very nice. And Melanie from Heritage, we want to give ours is a limited edition as well, right, Bridget? Just want to make sure. <laughs> Portfolio. This is for oh, you. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Thank Melanie, you so much. thank you so much. This was really, I have one question for you. I know yes. we don't have a lot of time, but one of the things that you wrote about in the book, it was actually early on, you talked about this newcomer's high school that yes. you went to. And I thought this was really interesting because you talked about how a lot of different cultures and countries have Thanksgiving type holidays and traditions, but America's is unique. And how important it was for people coming to this country to understand it. And that I was surprised by how many of them actually already knew about it. Mm -hmm. and were by, Could you just speak to that really briefly? Yeah, Newcomers High School, this was a place I actually went. It's a, a high school for immigrants in New York City in Queens. And I, I met with a bunch of students there. They came from the four corners of the earth. And their understanding, they had a personal understanding of what Thanksgiving meant. It wasn't just something in a history book. You know, one boy uh, said to me, uh, he said, I'm like the pillar.